Hello and welcome to the OCD family community. It's a snowy, icy wonderland in my corner of our global neighborhood, but it warms me to know that I get to spend time with all of you each and every Friday. So welcome on in and please join us because today is the start of a really important series near and dear to my heart. So let's get to it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. It's really great to be with you all today, and... Just to be honest, it's been a rough week. Last week, as I was wrapping up the podcast to publish, I learned news of a couple different deaths in my personal circles, and it's just been a lot. But this week has held a lot of bright spots, too. There were a few family birthdays where we got to celebrate life, and I had the pleasure of recording multiple guests for upcoming content for our fam. We also had remote learning days and telehealth and school delays and all the things. It was a week. And it's life, for lack of a better term. Ups and downs, challenges and successes. And while it's been important to feel my feels through it all, it's also been a lot. So I come to our family gathering tired, a bit weary and worn from the road that's preceded me here, but also full of hope. And isn't that a metaphor, if I've ever heard one, for life with OCD? The road getting here hasn't been easy. And right now, you may feel empowered, or you may feel downright exhausted. Some yet may feel battered and bruised. No matter how you're joining us today, you're welcome here. And you're not alone. And we are better together. So that brings me to today. Oh, family, I am I'm so excited, really, to just be intentional in really emphasizing the importance of this new series. Today, I'm launching part one of Finding Unity in Diversity, Exploring Treatment Intersectionality. Now, first things first, I want to address the word intersectionality. Yep, that one. For some, this is a triggering word. For others, it may be triggering that others are triggered by it. And I realize that my use of it can close some conversations before we even start them. So hear me out. If you've made it this far, whether you're a fan or not, or maybe even ambivalent to what that word means at all, let me tell you why I'm talking about it. Intersectionality often gets politicized from one side or the other, or multiple sides. And words like wokeness get thrown around. And what I find, from my experience at least, is people aren't listening and they won't start listening when you're name-calling or being condescending or things like that. Rather, battle lines are drawn. The us-them arguments get reported. 
And what gets lost in translation while people are defending their defensiveness is why words like intersectionality matter. Merriam-Webster defines intersectionality as, quote, the complex, cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination such as racism, sexism, and classism combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups, end quote. Y'all, words matter. Identity matters. They hold meaning for us. To you, this word may not fit the concept of who you know yourself to be, and that's okay. That doesn't mean it can't or shouldn't hold meaning for someone else. I mean, we can make up words left and right. We can have 50 synonyms for something akin to that's so cool. Yeah. Awesome. Righteous. Oh my gosh, I'm dating myself. <laughs> Radical. And still, our creative brains may never stop coming up with new hip ways to elevate the meaning. So if this word doesn't fit for you, it doesn't fit for you. For others, it fits in a profound way. And if it means something to our neighbor or our family right here, then it's worth respecting and learning about why. To me, when I conceptualize treatment intersectionality, it's layered and complicated. There's not a simple answer I can provide you on why it's important to me, but I'm still going to try and explain my why. If you've been around the OCD family community for a minute here, then you already know that OCD varies from person to person. I mean, it really individualizes to each sufferer in very specific ways. In the exposure and response prevention world, we describe this phenomenon as OCD impacting what we value most. With inference-based CBT language, we understand this as the inferential confusion swelling around our most vulnerable self-themes. Either way you slice it, it sucks. And it's hard. And why do words, or themes, or thoughts, or doubts matter so much? Because, y'all, they hold so much meaning, so many consequences for how we experience ourselves, the world. And intersectionality, it holds meaning too. As it stands, OCD treatment is most prominent in Northern America and Western European countries. A lot of the research, as you may recall Dr. Eric Storch telling us back in episode 12, is gathered from Caucasian and Western European participants. And researchers are aware of this. And in many ways, in many important ways, researchers are trying to change this. But there are still some major obstacles in creating these shifts that reflect more representative samples and more representative research and more representative treatment. And the way I conceptualize intersectionality is varied. It definitely includes cultural diversity. But I mean, what is culture when you get down to it? Merriam-Webster, I tell you, on top of it, defines culture as this. Actually, there's many definitions of culture, and it was hard for me to kind of pick just one. So let me give you a few. Quote, the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life shared by people in a place or time, and the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterizes an institution or organization, and the set of values, conventions, or social practices associated with a particular field, activity, or societal characteristic, end quote. And the reality 
The reality, you guys, is the availability of treatment, let alone understanding mental health itself or trusting that others can be trusted with our mental health. It isn't a reality for everyone. And that includes within race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion, neurodivergent populations, just to name a few. And so that creates a real problem because OCD, it doesn't discriminate. But the treatment options, well, they aren't representative and aren't available to the entire community. So what do we do about that? Well, that's what I want to explore in a myriad of ways. And today, my guest is Sean Flores, and he will help us chew on this topic more with an emphasis on ethnic minorities and masculinity, with a little sprinkle of religion in there, too. Sean is one of the International OCD Foundation's newest advocates, which incidentally came about after we were connected. But Sean made himself visible to IOCDF. He made himself visible to me. I was tagged in a lot of tweets, y'all, to other organizations involving OCD, and ultimately to you, because he risked saying, hey, I have OCD. And Sean, he is shattering stigmas left and right on what it means to have a mental health disorder and still be strong, still be Black, and still be a man. Sean is a gifted speaker. He's a gifted writer, and he already has a few TEDx talks under his belt, and he's dreaming up ideas for a few more. So you can expect that I'm definitely going to be linking more info on Sean, his TEDx talks, and an article that actually just came out earlier this week that does a great mic drop on what we're going to be discussing today. So no matter where you fall on the word intersectionality, please don't let one word hold you from a conversation. That's all I ask. We won't get anywhere drawing lines or refusing to listen to each other. You might agree with me. You might disagree. You might agree with Sean. You might disagree. We don't have to think alike. But if we can talk, if we can listen, then family, we can build strength in knowing, really knowing, all of us knowing that we aren't alone. So welcome to Sean and welcome to you, OCD family community. I'm glad you're here. Also, a quick trigger warning regarding today's content. We will be talking about suicidal ideation and harm OCD, where themes of suicide were experienced. If you or a loved one is struggling with thoughts of suicide, 988 is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline here in the United States. There are also crisis hotlines, respective for each country, and I would just highlight when it comes to harm OCD thoughts that can involve themes of suicide, take it to your therapist, someone who can understand and differentiate between egocentric thoughts of suicide and egodystonic thoughts of OCD. Welcome to the OCD Family Podcast, Sean. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really would like to be able to address in the podcast is especially to do with getting more ethnic minorities to speak about OCD and to have the conversation around OCD be a lot more inclusive. I think that's something that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for taking the time in the midst of just becoming an IOCDF advocate. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely really grateful to be part of the International OCD Foundation. It's taken me a long time to get to where I am now. I have absolutely, my friends and I quite often, they call me the legal harasser. I harass 
organizations, companies, and individuals in the most legal ways possible. <laughs> because I've, I think, unfortunately, to get to a lot of where you have to be in life, you really have to kick down doors sometimes when people won't open them. But I would like to do more of the International OCD Foundation because I wake up every day and I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I'm like, I'm going to change the world. That's my mentality with OCD. I've written about 15 articles. I've been interviewed numerous times. I've been on several podcasts, but I don't do it for the fame or the applause or the clout, so quote unquote. I do it because there's too many people out there with OCD that suffer in silence and other mental illnesses. So that's why I want to do more. I want it to be my full-time thing. I want to work in advocacy and not just be a career activist. Like This is something I genuinely really believe in. So mm -hmm. it's it's been a journey to say the least, but I'm grateful for where I am right now. Yeah. So the BIPOC population, Black, Indigenous people here in the United States, people of color, the BAME, am I saying that correctly, is also the organization there in the UK, Black, Asian, and the different ethnic minorities, right? And it's absolutely underrepresented when we're looking at minorities, when we're looking at other ethnicities. I feel like if you're Western European or this is the population that is in their own ways struggling even to get access to treatment. It's not enough. And yet there's such a divide. There's such a chasm between where we are and where we need to go. And I think there are some efforts to get more research, to get more understanding, to get culturally appropriate, not just to bring like ERP or to bring treatment to different places all around the world, but to use interventions that are more understanding to the cultural traditions, to what would be more helpful. You can still use ERP, but that doesn't even exist. And getting, getting there, we need more research. And getting research, it's hard to get research participants because there can be a lack of trust. Understandably, there can be a lack of, we don't go and talk about our business to just anybody. We're going to keep it in the family. I mean, there's a number of things. So I definitely want to be discussing that. And I think your, your write-up just was like so tight. I was like, yes, this is all, these are all the things I want to discuss. In addition to that, I really appreciated what you talked about with toxic masculinity or TEDx talk as well. And I think that's also a huge piece. No matter what your ethnicity, men are expected to dot, dot, dot. And then in this age of feminism, men really have to kind of walk a tightrope on how they, and this is just from my read on it, so I may be just barely skimming the surface, but men have to kind of walk this tightrope on how they be masculine and also honor the empowerment of feminism and empowerment of what other people have to offer. Something I really liked about your TEDx talk is how you talked about being raised by women and how they really laid the foundation for you to be able to step up and to be able to grow into the person that you are now. And so I thought, man, I mean, I love how empowering it is still two women, but to also acknowledge this masculinity and this need for a father figure and this, all of this was also so important. So I would love to also talk about that as a man, as a black man, as in whatever 
you want to get out there, I want to be able to help give you the, the form to get it out there. So I'm looking forward to that conversation, if that works for you as well. Most definitely. I'm happy to speak about everything on the podcast because the conversations I dare to have are conversations people have behind closed doors. And uh-huh. I speak about these things openly because I heard something really recent on David Goggins' audio book, Never Finished. He said, tell your story as many times as you can and you free yourself from becoming the prisoner of your past. Something like that, that was really profound and it really sat with me. And again, it reinforced why I do what I do. And you're right that I remember I was speaking to Stuart Ralph, who runs OCD Stories podcast. And we were talking about how being a man at times within this new age of feminism can be quite difficult. Men the Me Too movement made a lot of men feel paranoid and worried about how they interact with women. And some people's first initial response is going to be, well, if you don't do anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. It's not as black and white And when it comes to the dynamics between men and women. And I remember when I first, when I had intrusive thoughts about the word rape, I remember I thought if I went and spoke to somebody, they would not understand. And I thought, I think especially as a black man, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And this is something not many people will understand. But statistically speaking, via studies, black men are the most desired men on earth, but also we're the most feared on earth. So I was stuck between that rock and a hard place. I was thinking, why am I having these thoughts? There's something wrong with me, but people are going to be afraid of me if I go and tell them my thoughts. And these are the conversations that people do not want to have. And there was recent research that came out that present that showed that the black population when they present with OCD symptoms they're often more likely to be misdiagnosed as psychotic because our OCD symptoms present very differently compared to other populations and you're right that we need more research with ethnic minorities for OCD trials and I literally I just had an article released about why we need more ethnic minorities in OCD trials now what I was exploring with that article was When we look at medication and we look at the treatment that is currently available for OCD, it's okay. It helps a lot of the population. It gives a lot of people a shot at life. But when it comes to the ethnic minority population, we interact very differently with medication. And it's because we don't have a cleaner and a clearer representative example within that research. So these are the things that I'm trying to change. I've been on the psilocybin OCD trial at Imperial College London, where We've been testing out the therapeutic capabilities of magic mushrooms on reducing OCD symptoms. And I put my mind on the line, essentially, and it's been a fantastic journey. I'm coming towards the end of it. And I'm hoping that with the conversation I'm having with you, you know, which I'm incredibly grateful for, you've given me space on your platform and you're also doing some fantastic work, that it really helps other people to understand the nuances that happen within the OCD activism space and advocacy space. Because when I first joined the space, as I said, I don't like to use the word whitewash, but it was whitewashed and it was incredibly female orientated. We don't have enough men speaking about OCD and mental health. And I'm not saying this has to be a competition for people who are listening, but if we have a wider demographic of people speaking, we can reach more people, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, and representation matters. So, you know, something that really struck me, I think it was in the TEDx talk that you mentioned, uh, 
a lot of the role models, especially for young black boys looking up, were going to be rappers. They were going to be musicians. And it's important for artists to be, for you to be able to see yourself in art. Absolutely. But the point you were also making was, well, we need these other examples too. And you're really, through the work that you're doing, you're presenting that you can ask for help. You can be emotional. You can be masculine and still have shit happen. Pardon my shit. I say things like that every now and then. It's the it's the ERP background in me. I just, you know, <laughs> we just roll with it. Absolutely. But, I don't find many things offensive. I, I tell you that much. Okay. But what I will say is, yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to be able to see an educated person, to be able to see a successful person. That's why it was so groundbreaking when Barack Obama here in the States was president, because that took off the table that this is only one type of person that can be in office, that can be that person, the most powerful person in our country over here. And so I think it is so, so important. But having one Black president isn't the same as saying it's okay to be a man. It's okay to have a problem. I really would love to talk more about what you're saying, too, about Black men are desired, but they're the most feared. And feeling that persona, regardless of how you act, you're fighting this perception and constantly trying to prove yourself. And that's before you even get to any of the stuff that's inside. So it's a lot. Absolutely. And I was saying this to a lady that I met recently who's part of this radical recruiting agency that works within the diversity and inclusion space. And I'm not actually a huge fan of the way diversity and inclusion is at the moment. I think diversity and inclusion is a lot more around sex and gender, which is not a bad thing, and race, but not always around political opinion. I think the diversity of political opinion is actually incredibly important. Wim Hof said that criticism polishes the diamond that is the truth. So the more you criticize ideas, the more you have the ability to be able to talk about different things. And the freedom to think is the freedom to be offensive. So the things I'm thinking gives me the freedom to offend people and to probably even offend myself. But one thing I really realized, you know, when I live my everyday life, I get followed regularly in supermarkets. I can see people's doubts when they see me. And one of the biggest things that made me realize just how much I stood out was the OCD Game Changers event. So when they came to the UK, so that's with Chrissy Hodges, Stuart mm -hmm. Ralph, mm -hmm. Allegra Kristen, if I pronounced her name correctly. She's amazing, yeah. Yeah, a lot of these people are fantastic. They're doing some amazing work in the space and I've got nothing bad to say about them. But when I saw the title OCD Game Changers, I'm not sure, have you ever seen the movie 300 Spartans? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when King Leonidas says immortals, we'll put the name to the test. Uh-huh. So that's what I decided to do with the OCD Game Changers name. I said, I'm going to put this name to the test. And I'm someone who's actually quite shy and quite introverted. So I still pulled, turned up at the event. When I turned up at the event, the imposter syndrome that I felt was unreal. Mm. I was the only black guy in that building. There was only one other black woman who was there with her boyfriend, who was a white guy, and she was just supporting him, essentially. Mm -hmm. And... There was an Asian kid that came up to me and he said he heard my story on the podcast. And he just wanted to say thank you. And that meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. But I, I do quite often feel imposter syndrome. But courage is not the absence of fear. It's accepting fear and moving forward with it. And that's one of the things I've had to do massively 
in this space. When I also gave my TED talk, I remember at the rehearsal, a lady, when she saw me, she, and I'm not sure if you saw my TED talk, I was lifting a lot in the gym. I was considerably muscular. I was considerably bigger than I am now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be the complete opposite of what somebody <laughs> expects someone with a mental illness to look like. But well, and, she, and what is that supposed to look like? But yeah, go it's, ahead. It's true. Yeah, there's a there's there's a lot of stereotypes, right? Right. But she said to me, she came up to me and said, "Wow, your rehearsal was incredible." And I was just like, I said, "Thank you." And she couldn't stop going on the fact. She said, first of all, you're a young black man speaking about mental health." She said, secondly, you're muscular. You're not what we see these ideas of mental health with men being whiny, gaunt, just not looking like they're unkempt. She said, that's also massive. She said to me that it will reach so many other people out there because it really rocks the boat of what we believe somebody with a mental illness actually looks like. And when I gave that talk, I didn't know I had OCD. I had no awareness. And now when I give a TEDx talk, hopefully later this year, hopefully, mm-hmm. I've got in my sights two to three TED talks, which is huge. But I'm hoping that with my presence in the OCD space and me speaking about mental health, it changes what we believe people with a mental illness actually look like. We all have mental health, mm-hmm. but it's we all operate on a spectrum. But going back to one of your original points where you brought up I was raised by women. Yeah, I was raised by a very strong, powerful woman that promised to look after me when my dad died. So my dad died on Christmas Day when I was six years old. And if it wasn't for the women that helped to raise me, I wouldn't have been half of the man that I am today. I learned so much from my mom and the matriarchal unit that I was raised by. They taught me everything of who I wanted to be and everything that I am now. And I've still had to go off on my own path and discover my own versions of masculinity. But I don't know who I would have been if I didn't have such a strong base. Right. Yeah, totally. So with that, let's let's kind of scale back to some of the beginning days and we'll flow through it. I will say I'm a person with lived experience of OCD as well. And I love that you're able to really emphasize not just being who you are, but pointing out, do you see who I am? Like, this isn't the stereotype. I'm a strong person. You know, whether it's muscular or intellectually, you got that. And, and we all struggle. So many people keep it inward. It is an inward battle. And you talked a lot about that too in your TED Talk as well. Also, I'll just note, I was one of those people that you were tagging and putting on things. And so I was like, I want to talk to this dude. I already wanted to talk about the intersectionality of treatment and how it's just simply not a fair playing field. And we got to do better. What's interesting, and then I promise we will really go back there, but (laughs) what's interesting is when you say, I walk in the room and I feel like I have such imposter syndrome, which a lot of us OCD folk can totally empathize with getting that feeling of imposter syndrome. But what also my takeaway is, gosh, that is, that's where we're failing. Right? Yeah. Do you know what it is? I... I don't blame the OCD community because yeah. it would be wrong for me to throw the baby out of the bathwater, essentially. I believe the OCD community is doing some pivotal work, yeah. game-changing work. I, yeah. I, am, I am indebted to what the community has done for the people out there and how it's been able to give me a voice, essentially. Mm-hmm. But the one thing the community does lack is diversity. And 
the people that speak about it perhaps don't face the same consequences as other people. Now, when I was first announced as an international OCD advocate, mm -hmm. I remember on Instagram, I, I said I'm on a mission to change the representation in OCD. And I was talking about how I really want to try and get more ethnic minorities to speak out. That's my biggest focus. I'll talk to anybody and everybody, but I'm going to put in a little bit extra effort, intentional effort with the ethnic minorities. I just want them to speak up and to get them to be absorbed into the space, to open up, as you said, the intersectional approach to how we see OCD. And someone said to me, let me, you know what, let me actually find a comment because it's going to be a lot easier for me to find the comments. So you're going to get it in real time as Ooh. I'm speaking to you. We are right now. straight to the source. Yeah, straight to the source. Let me find this. Let's see. I'm like bracing for impact because I know the kind of comments that get thrown around on Instagram. And I'm like, is this going to be like, oh, or is it going to be like, oh. <laughs> oh, here we go. The goal is helping everyone with OCD to find healing. Focusing on de-whitifying it is racist, stupid, and frankly sounds like, like an obsessive thought. Reaching out to everyone is noble. Reaching out to people based on race is not. You. So he quoted one of the quotes I said in my article. OCD is a space heavily saturated with white voices and white spaces. I want to change that. And this is what he said to me after. You live in a predominantly white country. Statistically, you will have fewer black people suffering from any mental health disorder. Advocating for OCD awareness and destigmatization is a great goal. Focusing on skin color is not. You're lucky to have gotten effective treatment. Most don't. Now, I understood the point he was making, but my focus is not on de-whitifying the space. It's about diversifying the space. So right. other people realize that it's not just white people who get OCD. And one of the biggest common tropes within some ethnic minority communities is actually that OCD is a white person's thing. And it's these archaic ideas that continue as to why people won't speak up. Now, also, when he spoke about statistically, you will have fewer black people suffering from any mental health disorder. It's actually untrue because statistically speaking, black people who are in black predominant countries actually have far less mental health issues than black people who live in, as he rightly said, a predominantly white country. So doesn't that tell you something about the system, whether that's racism, discrimination or other things that are happening? These are the kind of conversations that need to happen. And I understand why to some people, it may feel like it's an attack and it's not an attack. I work with anybody and everybody and you, and you probably know this as well. But my biggest part that I really want to get people to understand is if we diversify the space, mm -hmm. we get more people that come into the space to give to the space what the space needs. And in turn, we better are casting off the net to help other people in society. And that's something that's really been on my agenda. You know, I, I think not I think, I know that when I was going through the worst of my OCD breakdown, I was trying to find people that were suffering with OCD. And most people I saw were white and there's nothing wrong with that. I saw one black person in the UK. Her name was Alison Black. And she reached out to me actually quite recently. And she felt like a hero. I saw Valerie Andrews from mm -hmm. the International OCD Foundation, She's another amazing. advocate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even Valerie and I were talking about this. We were saying that it's hard to get our communities to come forward to speak about OCD. So we're just trying to change that. And it doesn't mean we're focusing any less on anybody else. I help everybody and anyone knows that. If we can just get more people from our communities to come forward, we would be ever so grateful. Yeah. I mean, when we're looking at statistics, we have to look at to have numbers, to have statistics, we have to be able to have people, right? And so already, 
the statistics are low and it's still probably a sample of the sample. Okay. Absolutely. So it's not, and anybody who really works in research and, and knows research then knows that statistics, while important and can kind of guide ideas, can also be thrown about really easily. Like one out of three people make up statistics. I just made that up. I could be one of the three. There you go. <laughs> but it, but literally, I mean, it's not, it's not an accurate picture. So what do you do? If you can't get an accurate picture, then you work on getting a more accurate picture. And that is what we're doing. That is what we're talking about. That is what we're saying. That doesn't mean white people can't get help. And it's honestly, I won't give the person that wanted kind of flack on it too much attention here. But what I will say is, it's not about you. And it's a pretty privileged situation where you get to sit there and look and say, well, I think you're doing it wrong. Okay. Go yeah, he's, and I think the person's right. that I am very privileged. I'm privileged that I was able to get the help, but I didn't get the help for cheap. I still owe my therapist about £2,000. I couldn't get it on the NHS as we have over here. And I know in America, it's a very different system. I absolutely recognize that within the intersectionality of things, I am very privileged to be able to get the help that I was able to get, that I'm still in recovery. I still have the thought. I just no longer pay attention. I recognize how far I've been able to come and there's other people that are really suffering, but I want other people to find recovery the same way I have. But I know it's different for everybody. And I'm not sure if you saw, there was an article released in the New York Times where a writer had posted up an article saying she doesn't mind if people refer to themselves as OCD. And Allegra Christens made a video on it. And I understood their anger and their outroar in terms of the person they feel like continues this narrative of it being an adjective or a personality, a quirk or whatever. And, and I messaged the author directly. And I said to the author, I, I said to them, I appreciated your article. Some people will be really offended, but I appreciated your different perspective. The author didn't put that they had OCD. But when I spoke to the author, the author told me they actually have OCD themselves. Now, the next issue was, people in the comments were saying they don't have OCD how would they know and when I commented and I said the person actually does have OCD they said it's even worse they they should know they shouldn't be saying that but we can't determine what people's recovery looks like and the way that they see things mm -hmm. you know another person on Instagram I believe their page is called Anx is it anxiously balanced I can't remember I, I can't remember who it might be but she refers to if OCD was a superpower, what would your superpower be? Would it be empathy? Would it be, she was trying to put a positive twist on it. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes within the community, from what I've noticed in the short space that I've been here has been, we like to think about things in one absolutionist way, which I think is probably a cognitive distortion in some senses is black and white thinking <laughs> because not everybody's path to recovery is the right. same. It's okay. not the same. Right. Well, and this is a really important point when we talk about truly diversifying treatment, right? Because the way we process this is going to vary culturally and not just within ethnic groups or gender groups or sexual orientation groups, religious groups. It is going to vary family to family, person to person. Part of what we are going to start with talking about is what your family upbringing was like, because just because you're a black man doesn't mean your story is the same as Valerie's, is the story as anybody else that is brave enough to go, yeah, I'm a black person with OCD. 
okay? Absolutely. Or someone without OCD, okay? Like, we all have our own family cultures that fits within our bigger community cultures, fits within our bigger ethnic cultures. There are a lot of pieces to the puzzle, and I really hesitate to sit and dictate how somebody else can process their world. Like, that is... And that's exactly the point that I make, you know? Mm You and I could probably have conversations about certain things, and I'm not per se very politically correct in everything that I do. And I can take a joke. I've had people come up to me and say to me, people that I love and care about, people that have read my work, they still go, oh, I'm a bit OCD. And I've turned around and I said to them, I said, look, I don't find it offensive because I understand you you might be a little bit ill-informed. But I said, look, this is that's not what it is. There's a lot more to OCD and I just try to let them know I believe in educating people rather than getting ready to take the moral high ground because I believe through education we can get further to people rather than telling people this is how it is and this is wrong and this is how it should be yeah people get their backs up against the wall and people be like that's not how they should be I'm like I agree they shouldn't be like that but the reality is they might be like that so why not alter my approach if my long-term goal is to change the way we see OCD but also to change the way we see people who live with OCD as well we're not all people who shout down people's throats some of us generally enjoy a conversation we enjoy discourse and we enjoy being able to get you to understand look OCD is something that is generally quite debilitating it's an anxiety disorder for a reason people have taken their lives as a result of OCD so yeah Well, and you know, something that struck me about what you just said there, too, is like, it's not even how we see other people with OCD, it's how we see people. Like, we need to, Mm. a lot of times, we get so quick to judge the other person. They said this, this Mm. means they're this, this, and this. And there's a lot of really polarized thought in this day and age. I think there always has been, but because we have access to social media and we don't even have to think through what we say before everybody else can see it and it's disseminated. I mean, there are a lot of big feelings and it gets pretty, pretty messy. And so it is really important to have a discussion. And there are battle lines drawn. If you talk like this or you think like this, I'm not talking to you. That doesn't help us. That doesn't help us you know one of the things you said toward the beginning of of our recording here was the importance of having you were talking about it in terms of kind of the political realm but we need to be able to have these discussions but the problem too i think that comes in with politics no matter where you stand and this is internationally because we all got our shit that we deal with (laughs) within our own countries right we got we all have you know even within our own work within our own families within our own communities there's there's a politics a bureaucracy to it and the problem isn't having really different ideas it's how we communicate or don't and really it's more of a thing of we're not so it is it's really really important i really appreciate it something too i'm thinking of with valerie who has spoken at the faith and ocd conference Another huge piece of her story that I would say is also very important when we're thinking about diversity is religious diversity. And I know that people don't always necessarily, unless we're talking about Islam or we're talking about where people have been persecuted, like the Jewish community and the Holocaust, all of that history, 
we don't tend to like to group religious people into that same kind of awareness field with race, with gender, with sexual orientation, with all of that. But it's a huge piece of what forms people's understanding of how they engage in the world. And I know for Valerie's stories, along with a lot of people that talked at the Faith and OCD conference, he talked about not only am I a Black woman, I didn't feel like I could talk about this, but I, I go to church. I need to be right with God in this. And I believe it was Valerie who said, OCD is not the casserole disorder. No one's like, you having an intrusive thought. Let me bring you, let me bring you a lasagna, Sean. You must be having such a hard go at it. No, yeah. you tear your ACL. People are like, shit, that's a bad injury. And yeah. it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Do you know what's, do you know what's so funny? You're right. And Valerie's made a really good point. And I'm actually writing, as you were talking, my, the conversation you and I are having, I just, it's inspiring so many different article ideas for me. But last year was, OCD was the beginning of troubles. I tore my ACL, MCL, meniscus, fractured my leg. My cousin got murdered. My auntie died. My oh half-brother my died. All these things were happening on top of it. But I'm very grateful to be out of it on the other side because it taught me a lot about life, to be grateful and to practice my gratitude. And it's still not easy, don't get me wrong, but I work very hard in my recovery. I practice ascension ERP lifestyle. I avoid nothing now. I go towards everything that makes me afraid because I know it's I'm going to grow the most. And I'm doing a life coach course, which I've actually restarted today because last year, as a result of OCD, there was a whole mental health breakdown. But going back to the religion, I'm writing a piece right now, which is me talking about growing up within the church. I grew up Seventh-day Adventist and how mental health conversations when I was young never existed simply because religious dogma triumphed over everything. And I believe secular treatment triumphs religious dogma. However, I want it to be at a place that, even though I'm not very religious, that the communities, the religious leaders, can come to the realization and the idea that some things are out of a religious remit. That yeah. where with practicing CBT evidence and ERP, you can help people with religious OCD. Yes. And that's just a classic example. Because I've met up with a reverend over here in the UK who actually has OCD himself. And we're talking about some very powerful plans. I speak to Reverend Katie, who's Katie doing, some mm -hmm. yeah, doing some fantastic work. Yeah. With the diversity of people coming into the OCD space, we are widening these conversations. And Valerie's made some absolutely great points. Because when I heard Valerie's story, people have suffered for years. I've had people reach out to me. And when they saw me on Channel 4, a really big news station over here, someone reached out to me and said, I've been suffering of OCD for 40 years. It was only until I saw your story is that I realized this is what I've got. And this is what I mean, that the freedom to speak openly about OCD and certain conversations that you don't always want to hear allow us to reach more people. And I think that's more important than us rightly sometimes being offended, but there's other times we have to look at the bigger picture. And I think with a lot of work that I do, I don't purport to be in a visionary, but I look towards the future rather than just in the here and now. So one of my other article ideas as I was talking to you was it's actually called diversifying the way we see recovery in OCD. 
how cancel culture cancels certain mental health conversations. I'm inspired by this conversation because we are discoursing and you're making me sit and think. We probably don't agree on everything in this world, Nicole, but we agree that OCD is torturous. We agree that it, it's a big part of our lives. It's part of our identity. But we know that there's different ways we view recovery. There's different ways we can get communities to come together. And I think it's just these conversations are life-changing. It's as simple as that. that. They are. And it's why I am so thankful that you're here and why I really wanted to do this Unity and Diversity series because I think it is so important for us to understand we have such better odds we have such better chances we have such better everything when we're together we are better together the thing is you and i we don't need to agree on everything and it would be kind of a boring world if we did it right yeah. if we all were like yep and then we would all need the same resources talk about tapping out our resources we'd be like blah we all need it we all have the great same ideas if i do say so myself they're part of the beauty comes in where we don't see things eye to eye. And again, where we were talking about that black and white thinking, if we all just thought the same way, we are missing all the shades of gray. We are missing, but beyond that, there's a whole tapestry of colors out there. And we got to do what we can to embrace the beauty of all of that because we're better together. We are. And we're not alone. People all over the world, even, you know, you were talking about the statistics where you're in a predominantly white country. What about countries that are predominantly black? Well, mm. yes, it's absolutely can say something about the system. So I agree with that. And I would say how the questions are asked. How, mm. how the, you know, if you were to go into a family gathering, you were, you were, to, sometimes I compare the podcast to a big family gathering, right? We're gathering for a meal. We sit around the table. We're hanging out. And, you know, if we were just chewing the fat and we were saying, what's going on? Have you ever had an experience like this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, let me tell you about this one time. Like, we could really get into some conversations where we could go, wow, I'm not alone. But that conversation isn't had about any of mental health, really, until somebody, you know, commits suicide. We just had Twitch that committed suicide. And it's devastating. And everyone says, but he was so happy on the outside. And there you have it. Somebody who looks like they have it together, a great representation for black men. And he was suffering. And so the reality is Twitch is the only one. We have a lot of people suffering all around the world. And here in America, we're a privileged country. And Twitch, he was a successful guy. And he still struggled. What does it mean? For the kids down on the other side of the tracks, what does it mean for people in every other country all around the world? Because it's happening here. It's happening everywhere. And we need to have these conversations. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your childhood and your family dynamic. Are you an only child? Did you have siblings? What was the family dynamic? Obviously a big change when you lost your father. But if you'd be willing to share with us, we'd love to hear it. So yeah, what happened for me growing up was my father died on Christmas Day when I was six years old. I was really close with him. We were He was almost like my best friend. He was almost like my hero. He looked after me. He took care of me. He did everything that a father should do. He was my confidant. And losing him was a really big loss in my life. And I just had to carry on with life. I never 
really comprehended what I had been through. And it's only been recently since my OCD breakdown and exploring the complexities of my mental health and my emotions, what I realized that my dad meant a lot to me. And growing up, I, I was the kind of kid that in school I did pretty well. I, I used to call myself a floaty poo. I was never cool enough for the cool kids and I was never nerdy enough for the nerdy kids. I, I was able to float around in both spaces. And I think that really reflects me at the moment. And in other podcasts when I've been interviewed, I remember I referred to myself as politically homeless and philosophically quite nuanced because I think that was the best way for me to describe who I was growing up. And a lot of my early years informed me of who I was going to be from going to church. I didn't always really like enjoy church in any way, shape or form, but it taught me a lot of who I was today. It taught me a lot of who I wanted to be, who I didn't want to be. And it was through university when I did my master's I was opened up to new ideas. I, I explored all these different things that were so outside. It was the, again, the freedom to think that showed me the world was far bigger than what I could have ever imagined it to be. But a couple of years ago, actually looking back, I was talking to somebody else about this, that I think I've had intrusive thoughts for a lot longer than I thought I did. So when I was working in an addiction clinic, I remember they were speaking about a young man who had committed suicide as a result of his alcohol addiction. And he was gay as well. His family couldn't accept him. He had hung himself. And I remember for the whole day after that, I just had the thought suicide, suicide running in my head. And I just went home and I cried. Mm -hmm. It eventually left, but I didn't really think anything very different of it. Mm -hmm. Then I had health anxiety and I had this obsession and this fear that I had chlamydia because I had caught it before or I had HIV. Every time I went to the toilet, I couldn't stop obsessing. I would cancel all my plans. I'd go to the sexual health clinic. Uh -huh. And at, at my worst, I paid £300 for a same-day sexual health test because I just wanted to prove. Anyone with OCD probably knows this, that you look at evidence, and you're like, nope, nope, this, this, nope, there's something about this. It must be wrong. Yeah, there, there's always yeah. just a little something that you probably haven't vetted well enough, right? Exactly. And so, it's urgent. It's urgent. Yeah. So, but, yeah, urgent. I cancelled all my plans. Mm -hmm. Every one of my plans I'd cancel and I'd run straight to where I, I wanted to go. Now, what happened after that was I had an OCD dream, which is what now I can coin it as, where I saw the back of a white guy in boxers and I woke up and I remember just looking at the ceiling and having this 100% conviction, I was suddenly gay. Now, for people who are listening who maybe don't have OCD, it's illogical. Me, I don't suddenly become gay overnight because I have a dream of a guy. But in my head, it was the anxiety that surrounded it. And maybe in some parts it's homophobia. Probably, yes, I've internalized it, maybe, because I've grown up in a culture where homosexuality is technically actually still illegal in some of the Caribbean countries and there's certain attitudes because of Christian fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was the loss of identity that crushed me. It was the loss of suddenly becoming... I felt like everything I once knew about myself had suddenly changed. Mm -hmm. And I remember I woke up and I threw up. I, I, I remember when I was around some of my gay friends, I would just become so self-conscious. If my friends touched me, I'd be staring at my body parts, just waiting. I had the groiner responses and I just couldn't stop obsessing. If I was watching MMA, I'd have thoughts that pop into my head, such as you're watching them because they're half naked. I'd be like, here we go again. So I'd have stopped watching stuff. Now, after that was, when I was with one of my female friends, just the word rape popped into my head. I lost it. I had a huge panic attack. And I remember I screamed at my friend to leave because 
I thought to have the thoughts meant that was what, what I was going to do, but that wasn't the actual case. And I tried to sleep, couldn't sleep. I had the suicide images in my head. I had the blood, the gore right at the front of my mind. So I went outside, I gave my keys to some workers that were outside and I said, call the ambulance. And I remember I was walking up and down thinking, no, 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 I'm hearing voices. There's something wrong. Because although it was my own thought and my own voice, I was convinced to have that word in my head meant it couldn't be me. Mental health team came to check out on me. I said, no, I'll be okay. I'll go see psychodynamic therapist. For OCD, psychodynamic therapist makes it a hundred times worse. I remember I'd come back from therapy and I'd just be on a rabbit hole of thinking over and over again. My rumination was essentially put onto a hamster wheel and rumination already is a hamster wheel. Right. So imagine I was spinning like a Ferrari essentially in my mind. It was rumination on EMS. I mean, we're absolutely. like... <laughs> oh, absolutely. We'll yeah, so that's a good EMS. one. Yeah. I like that one, actually. It is rumination on... Uh, so if people don't know, don't know what EMS is, EMS is electrical magnetic stimulation. So it forces direct electrical stimulation into your muscles, which helps your muscle grow and get stronger, which I'm using for the rehab for my torn ACL. So what happened after that was, I remember just when I was on the bus one time, the thought of fight the guy popped into my head and I was like, no, 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 there's something up. Had another breakdown, but I said, I'll be okay, cool. I've been here before. I know how to handle it. Tried to go to the shop a few minutes later. Suicide image popped into my head and the suicide image was of me putting my arms out and jumping off a bridge. That was it for me. I called an Uber. I, I was crying in the Uber on the way home. I just panicked. I wanted to be home. Called all my friends and I told them I'm depressed and suicidal. And I remember I looked at one of my friends dead in his eye and I said, I want to die. I said, I'm depressed. I'm suicidal. Because I believed having a suicide thought meant that I was suicidal right absolutely and he Mm -hmm. just started crying he didn't know what to do my friends came and stayed with me for a while and they couldn't really do much for me I didn't really want to eat I didn't want to be alive I was putting on a brave face but in my mind I wanted out of life I I remember I called a mental health charity three nights in a row because I was having to cut myself thoughts and I remember what happened was when I was having to cut myself thoughts I put the knife to my wrist and I was like there's no feeling why am I having this thought what is going on I could not comprehend what was happening and I remember I said if I don't sleep I'm going to kill myself and I woke up in the morning and I was crying because I said how could I think like that I was going to allow a temporary feeling to make me make a permanent decision that's how bad OCD had taken me to so when people say OCD is debilitating. It really is. It it took a big chunk of my life last year. And I realized it took many other parts of my life over the last couple of years. And I didn't realize I was unaware, but now I've got the tools. I'm able to pull my life back. I'm able to obsess less. But I found a therapist via the internet. And I remember I called her on Saturday, the 4th of June was the day. And I just started crying my eyes out. As soon as she picked up the phone, I just cried. I said to her, why am I having all these thoughts? Am I a bad person? Am I going to get better? And she said to me, you will get better. She said to me, look, I'm with my kids and I'm with my husband and we're out shopping because she had perinatal OCD and she said she had it flare up both when she had kids. She saved my life is the only way for me to put it. And Mm -hmm. I've always said to her, how can I repay it? And she said, you can pay it forward. And that's what I'm trying to do with my advocacy and activism. I'm relentless with it because... I know what OCD did to me and I know what it took from me. And 
One of my biggest sayings is OCD was the worst thing to ever happen to me, but I will be the worst thing to ever happen to OCD. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before about things that ruffle folks in the OCD community up, and that's when you use it as an adjective or whatnot, even though I don't know about you, but I know for me, I'm like, oh, that's my OCD talking. I use it all the time for my own adjective of like, yeah, I know that was me piping up in distress on that. And so, but it's definitely, I think, one of those things like, Okay, I deal with it, but you're not supposed to say it, right? You know, so there gets all this bureaucratic rules around it and whatnot. I think mostly what people are ticked off about is you talking about you having a preference about something and calling it OCD. But what is interesting about what you were saying, too, is I was the thought popped into my head of, I wonder the Uber drivers see a lot. And I mean, talk about where can we connect with people, (laughs) I mean, Uber drivers get a lot of, I think, just raw emotion in their Mm. rides. And it's really, it's really something. But yeah, I mean, absolutely not knowing what all of that is, being afraid to say, I know for myself, I've, I've been, how could I think this up before I had the awareness? And now in hindsight, hindsight's 2020, so we can look back and go, oh yeah, okay, that was definitely OCD doing its thing back then. But at the time, it's so immersive, it's so absorbing, it's so real to what you're experiencing. What are you to do? You know, something that struck me, I learned in getting ready for today, you talked about in your TEDx talk that your mom had some really severe depression after your dad passed away, which I can only imagine how tough. And I am, I'm so sorry for your recent losses and for that loss, I think you have such an empowering message on how you've chosen to sail with that and not let it sink you. But it's it's been, I, I can only imagine how hard missing him. And, you know, when your mom went through that depression at the time, so you were six when he passed, do you remember seeing her in that depressed state? And what did you think that was? Did she have an awareness that that was depression? You talk about in the TEDx talk, she came from a time, she was growing up in a time where it was no blacks, no dogs, and no Irish. So it was like, talk about a lack of resources. We weren't even recognizing her humanity in that moment. And Mm -hmm. so what was that like seeing her go through that depression when you were just a young boy? So from what I remember, when there was a knock on the door on Christmas Day, the two police officers turned up and they, I had to go deliver. I had to be the bearer of bad news to my mum. And I just remember her oh. shaking, trembling, eating her oats. And my mum was heartbroken and I could tell. And my mum, as I said, went through about six months of severe depression. And she has said to me before that, if it wasn't for me, she probably would have no longer been here. And growing up, I realised when I was in school, my teachers would always say my mum looked like she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. My mum's quite anxious. And losing my dad, she lost her husband. She lost the father to her child. She lost her first love, the man she had given everything to. And I recognise how painful that was. She grew up in a time where love and romance had a very different meaning to what it had right now. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a, something I could probably never comprehend. And I realized a lot of my commitment issues came out of seeing my mum's pain from my dad. When she lost him, as I said, I look back and I realized, wow, my mum was crushed, absolutely crushed. And she would leave the keys in the door, shoes on top of the car. She had a panic attacks. I don't think she ever really comprehended that was depression. I don't think she had the tools to understand it. Maybe she did, 
she was a nurse actually funnily enough but as my mum always says to me she just had to survive she had to mm-hmm. my mum was sent to this country in the uk because my granddad was racist he didn't like my mum's boyfriend at the time when she was young because he was darker skinned my granddad favored lighter skinned individuals yet my granddad was very dark he was black and indian which is dogla but the race dynamics and the class dynamics in trinidad are very interesting so my mom was forced to come over here not of her own will and she had to make life for herself and then to find my dad and to have a kid my mom wasn't supposed to be able to have kids either she had fibroids and she had me at 44 my dad had me at 62 my dad died at 68 so they were considerably older and i now understand growing up what it meant to my mom to have my father around but she calls me the miracle child as well. I wasn't supposed to technically be here. She wasn't supposed to be able to have a child. Right. So, yeah, the conversations about mental health don't really exist. But I think my mom probably never really says it. But when she hears me talk on podcasts and reads my articles, she says, I never knew that type of OCD existed, you know. So it's the least that I can do. Right. Did you feel like there was space for you to mourn and grieve? The loss no. of this man who was so pivotal to you, or did you feel like I have to be the man of the house? I have to be strong for mom. I mean, at six, I have a six-year-old John, and I mm. cannot imagine the weight of that responsibility being on your shoulders to go, Mom, dad's died on Christmas. There's never yeah. a good day to have your dad die, but wow, what what a hard, hard thing. Yeah. I never had the tools to mourn his death. I didn't, the best way for me to say it was I didn't comprehend how much his loss really had a profound effect on my life. And why I say that was because I just, I just got on with life. You're right. I had to just. Man up. Grow up. Yeah, man up. I had to grow up very quickly. And the way that I grew up was I was always trying to make my mom happy. I was always trying to make her proud. I was always trying to bring her peace. But I realized at the same time with me doing that, I sacrificed doing a lot of the things that I wanted to do in the fear that I'd hurt my mum. So, for example, I think ideally my mum would want me to do a nine to five. I don't work a nine to five. I do what makes me happy, which is writing, public speaking, my modeling, journalism. I'm doing the things that make me happy and allow me to explore my creative side. But if I had remained the young boy that I was then, now, I would still be doing things to make my parents happy. And it's my happiness is more important than anything else. You know, I'm my, I am my own person, but I didn't have the tools. I had to go to grief therapy to really understand it. Mm-hmm. And it's been through, I actually think through OCD, I've actually started to mourn his death. Mm-hmm. I've never cried so much in my entire life since my mental health breakdown last year mm-hmm. because I'm grateful for life. And I remember there were days when I meditated and I saw my dad and it was a young me running up to my dad, hugging him. And I, I remember I was crying. I was like, dad, I miss you. And I'm 28. The pain is still there, but the jar in which the trauma operates, the jar gets bigger and in turn, the trauma gets smaller. But I, I'm learning to finally start dealing with his death. I'm, I'm acknowledging it for what it is rather than denying it. Yeah. I think, gosh, I want to say, is it Tonkin, who does the model of grief, has a really beautiful visual where you really get this idea of over time, sometimes people think, well, the ball's supposed to shrink, right? No, you know, the grief no. is supposed to shrink over time, but it's not. It's just that your jar, your, your vessel, your experience continues to get bigger and bigger. Yeah, 
Tonkin. But it's a really powerful visual. So, you know, if you check that out, people sometimes, I think, whether communities just saying, I want you to get on and I need you to feel better for me to feel mm. better, want you to be like, but that was a while ago, right? You know, you've dealt with a lot of that, right? And it's no, it's just as big and just as present as it's ever been. But I continue to grow and we are growing around our grief. And so I think it's a really beautiful, painful, hard thing, but an important thing. And when we live our lives trying to make sure someone else is good at the cost of our own needs, then Absolutely. often that's where resentment starts to breed and that's where it just becomes really hard to function because we have needs too. I mean, we cannot recharge our battery by recharging somebody else's battery. The best way we can take care of them is to take care of ourselves. And it's interesting because in that, in that kind of thought line of man up and I need to just move on and do this, that just kind of reminds me of what you talked about in your TEDx talk about masculinity. You talked about it really paints a picture being a straitjacket of masculinity. And you quoted, I believe it was Judas Stilton, with four messages that really men were getting about what it means to be a man. There was the need to have a stiff upper lip. So you need to suck it up and move on. And you did. You needed a man had to be in control of himself. He had to be reliant. He had to be able to handle situations without asking for help. He had to protect and keep safe the important people in his life like you did for your mom and not trouble her with your own struggles, your own concerns, your own needs. And you also had to overcome any challenge without fear. And I'm really, and I'm really still struck kind of just what you said in the very beginning. Black men are desired, but they're the most feared. And then I have to sit there fearless. But you had to be so scared, Sean. You had mm -hmm. to be so incredibly scared and feeling just the pressure of, but that's not what it is to be a man. Like, oh, gosh, that had to be such a mind bend. It still has to be such a mind bend, frankly, because right now, I mean, what it means to be a man is such an evolving concept even. Absolutely. You know, and so it's it's got to be really, really hard in terms of that. And so I really appreciate you sharing about that. And if there's anything else you would want to say, I know you have the two pictures that you juxtaposed where you're like, this is me. This is just two different sides of me. But it wasn't these could be taken moments apart. They don't need to be decades apart they don't need they're all you this is me sad this is me happy these are me and so being able to be a full authentic you is going to be so important but what does that mean for you sean as a black man who had to keep his shit together had to take care of people and now dealing with what you know is ocd i think now manhood is a very different concept to me and you, you probably also saw in the speech i was heavily inspired by one of my really good friends malcolm who taught me mm. a, about what it actually meant to be the man that i wanted to be not the man that society wanted me to be and i'm soft i'm sensitive i'm succinct i'm specific soft i already said soft but mm. it reinforces I'm, I'm emotional i'm kind i'm stern i'm still masculine i've got elements of femininity in me Mm -hmm. But 
the ideas that I had of masculinity growing up and that I saw on TV weren't always the best. But luckily enough, my male role models were people like Trevor McDonald, Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Those, that's who my mum really exposed me to. So a lot of intellectual figures, per mm -hmm. se. I remember I didn't even really listen to music growing up. There were small things that really influenced my childhood. And I, I was actually, as I was speaking to you, I did, I'm going to give you a Sean special quote. All right. And it's the unconditional nature of masculinity is creating conditions in which problems are born for men. That's something I just randomly thought about. And as you said, you know, the five tenets of masculinity, a man must always be a man. He must not complain about his problems. He must be there for everybody. He must take care of the people around him. He must not burden people with his issues. It's the unconditional nature of what masculinity, a man must be a man no matter what. He doesn't have the opportunity to take any days off. His masculinity is not conditional. The world needs him to be a man all the time. But those very conditions are creating problems for men because the world is changing. We, we, we no longer need to be that in very certain ways. And there's going to be a lot of traditionalists who argue that was the golden era for men. It was better then. It was, But we lost a lot of men as a result of other things that were happening in the world. The world's changing. The world's adapting. And... I thought that me acknowledging my emotions made me less of a man and it doesn't. It just shows me that, that well, there's more to me than I thought. There's the person that I built myself to be rather than the person that I am. Mm -hmm. And the person that I am, as I said, I'm, I'm intellectual. I love to study. I'm a bit of a nerd. But at the same time, I love my sports. I love the quote-unquote guys thing. So my TEDx talk was almost like, it was almost a closure, actually, in a really big chapter of my life. And as I said, allowing my dad's death to no longer be an anchor, but to be a sail at which I used to set forth. Yeah. Well, I, what was interesting is after I watched it, I thought, that's like a love letter to himself. It's like you gave yourself the flower. And for Absolutely. people for people that don't know what I'm referencing with that, so you had a really really great point not just to re-echo everything from the TED talk but I was like wow that was really powerful I believe it was Anne Frank who said something to kid to dead people receive more flowers at their grave than when they are when they're alive because it is easier to appreciate people in death rather than it is to appreciate them in life something like yeah, that yeah something like that and so oh. you actually started which I wonder do you still have that podcast the flower hour yeah, I need to get back into it. So after what everything that happened last year, I took a break from a lot of things. Okay. And I'm slowly reintroducing them back into my life. So I've still got my mic, got my headphones. I still have the studio that I rent out, but I'm going to get back into it. But everything has a renewed purpose for me now. Everything's got a different, it's a different vigor. I, I'm yeah. coming to the world with a different virility now. Yeah, I, I love that. And when I watched that, I was like, you know what? I bet he wasn't aware of OCD that was brewing under the hood at that point. Because just, yeah, talking to you, you're like, I'm not going to be shy about it. I'm here. I'm here to make a difference with this. So I, I love that. One of the next questions I have is, what do you remember your family's stance being about mental health? Did you guys ever have explicit conversations about what mental health is or isn't, whether it's to be trusted or not, anything like that? Never really had much conversations about it. It wasn't something, it wasn't a conversation that was ever brought up. 
And mm. with me speaking about everything that happened, I don't think it's even something they ever really comprehend because I do my best to try and articulate what's happened. Mm -hmm. I just think it's not something they get. And I think the angle at which they understand it from is typically a religious one where yeah. they say they'll pray for me. They say that God still loves me. And I say, it's that's all right. But it's not really a conversation that happens. And I don't think it will happen. But the one thing I've learned on recovery is, in bar whilst being in recovery, has been, I need to stop expecting people to understand things the way that I do. You know, their issues are more deep-rooted than my very existence. And I'm a lot younger than they are. They've got very different experiences of the world, which has shaped a lot of their viewpoints. And I grew up in an age where there's been a plethora of information available to me. I had literally have the World Wide Web at my fingertips. Right. I grew up in a time where information is so readily available. For them, they're almost still babies discovering the world, not in a patronizing or a condescending no, way, but there's a term called digital native. So millennials grew up with the internet essentially in its ascension and Gen Z also we're known as digital natives. We understand the, well, the digital era better than anybody else. We're in yeah. the 21st century, which is the information age. We've grown up in a very different time. So no, conversations haven't, they've changed to a degree, but I think I'd rather let my work show the change because if I was to expect them to change based on that, I'll be holding my breath for a very long time. Right, right. So you talked also about when you did then decide. So it wasn't really laid as a foundation, but when you did decide to go to therapy, it was talk therapy and it talked up <laughs> it talked up the rumination and all the things. Absolutely. And then of course your therapist that you credit was saving your life as well, which I would also say you saved your life too, you know. It, but it was the pow it was the dream team there. But what I would ask is what was it like then, not only as a man, but as a black man? And I'm guessing then as a young adult, you going, okay, do I go to therapy? What was it like to approach that? And what was your experience of the process? So a lot of people, when I first said, I'm going to start going to therapy, a lot of people really respected it. And other people said, I can't talk to a shrink or I can't speak to somebody who doesn't understand me. But for me, it was a relief. It was quite strange. At the beginning of therapy, it was a relief to have someone that didn't care about me. In, not not in a horrible way, but right. someone who was just able to listen to my stuff and just help me objectively from the tools that they understand in psychology. That was really helpful for me at the time. But when it came to recovery, I needed someone who cared about me. If I had somebody who was just a textbook OCD anxiety specialist, it, it would not have worked. I needed someone to care about me. Mm -hmm. But since then, people have really been appreciative and I think very honored by the fact I speak so openly about therapy because everyone in this world needs therapy. For me, it's actually a big red flag when people say they don't need therapy because it suggests that we're perfect. One of the biggest sayings I hear people go is, this is just how I am. But then if that's how you are, that's how you'll always be. And one of the biggest things I had to realize was to self-improve, I needed to go to therapy. Yeah. So when other people refused to go to therapy I just said I'm going to be the change that I wanted to see in the world and other people followed on from that mm -hmm. I I'm, I'm really grateful for the fact that I've got quite a leader's mentality at times I'm someone who refuses to take no for an answer and 
regardless what people thought of me, I don't believe I would have changed going to therapy because I needed it. And it's something I'm going to need for the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm at peace with that because I'm going to need it for these different chapters of my life. And some of the people that I've met, thanks to the OCD community and so much more, are friends for life that I'm always going to have. But therapy, I needed it and I would never change therapy for the world. Yeah. Do you think there were different barriers for you accessing treatment? I know you talked a little bit about still owing, <laughs> owing a little bit of a balance and <laughs> talking about some of the challenges that different healthcare systems can bring. But do you think that there were some barriers? I mean, certainly you got the feedback that you're privileged. You got to access it. So be happy about that, even if you got a pill. But, you know, certainly there are barriers to accessing Abs treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. So can we talk about that a little bit in terms of what you see as some of the barriers for access at large? I mean, you talked about it in that article that you just published, which is an excellent article. And I'm going to put a link to it on the blog post for this episode's podcast because I think it's excellent. I retweeted it as soon as I saw it because I was like, yes, 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 yes all these things, right? But you really, you did a great job of pointing out barriers and, and historically speaking, not just here in America or there in the UK, like there are so many multifaceted pieces to why there's some distrust with the system and how the system has failed different people in different spaces all around the world. Absolutely. And even as I'm talking to you, another article idea has come into my head, which is just get over your trauma, no psychologist or therapist has ever said. I told you this conversation is really inspiring me. One second. No, and you're good. Write it down. This is one thing that I'm always trying to do. There's a channel called Big Think, which talks about you need to have a second brain. And having a second brain is a journal. Having a second brain is writing down your ideas. There's many different ways for you to practice teaching your brain to offload. So whenever I get really juicy ideas, I always have to write them down. Yes. I think a lot of artists do that too. They're like, this is a moment that I don't want to lose. Yeah. Well, they call it light bulb moment. Yeah. But yeah. There are a lot of barriers to access when it comes to OCD treatment. So we know that in the UK, I think it's all over the world, actually. On average, it takes some people up to 12 years to be diagnosed with OCD. I strongly believe that's even bigger within the ethnic minority communities due mm -hmm. to the other factors that they face. So if I had gone to the church that I go to and I had said, these are some of the thoughts that I'm having. Some people would have said to me, let's pray the demons out of you mm -hmm. or the devil's spiritually attacking you. And if I was very religious, I could have gone down a new compulsion, which is excessive prayer. Could be anything, could be washing my hands more, could be the fear that I'm going to be going to hell. It could be all sorts of different things that could have been playing mm -hmm. into me. So one of the biggest barriers that actually exist is religion, in my opinion. It's the archaic institutions that they fit within certain parts of society but in other parts they are incredibly outdated not in the sense of i understand the importance religion has for people but we need to also explore some notions within the religious institutions are actually further entrenching other people's mental illnesses but other people would argue with me and say that the devil gave them a mental illness as a result of this and that well you can believe whatever you want to believe now another really big access barrier that i think really hinders access is truthfully just having therapists that are a little bit more reflective of the population that they serve now i was like say it sean you're like a little yeah. more reflective therapists of color therapists yeah. are different 
ethnicities, different orientations, different genders, different religions, Absolutely. different yes, yes. Even male therapists, male because therapists. We, because we know that in the UK, I think if I remember correctly, eighty percent of therapists are female and twenty percent are men, and that's a starch contrast. It's so so big and. I'm joining a really small cohort of therapists, hopefully later on down the line. And these things are really important. I think it really helps people realize, wow, I'm not the only person out there. And having someone that can somewhat, I'm not saying just because I'm black and somebody else is black doesn't mean they can fully align to every part of my experiences. But there's certain cultural nuances and certain things within the lived experience of certain cultures where people can get it a little bit easier than somebody else who doesn't. But right. I also argue with this point as well. And I often say that it's not down to the therapist to always understand. It can be down to the individual to articulate the experience. But this is where I think I'm a little bit, I fall a bit more in line with accountability and responsibility, probably more than the average person, probably to the point where I probably put too much on myself. Maybe this is some, that's something I need to figure out myself. But representation would really, really, really help. So representation, having more men, people of color, women in different spaces when it comes to research and so much more. Another big access to treatment is obviously the way we view different ethnic minorities and how their OCD presents has a big impact. Because as I said earlier on in this podcast, that black people who have OCD quite typically present very different symptoms compared to other populations. And yet they're more likely to be misdiagnosed as psychotic. So that's another conversation that also it is. needs mm -hmm. to be had. And that statement alone can drive up fear when most of the community already fears that they're going to be put into a mental institution. Because as I said, historically speaking, we understand that certain practices within medical history were very abhorrent inhumane practices you know right john marion sims the founder of modern day gynecology experimented on black women there's a tuskegee syphilis experiment where they injected four i think it's 400 slaves and they could have easily cured them but they kept them going up until their death just to keep it up for research now people who are going but yeah that's the u.s and that's britain this is britain the differences of the u.s and britain is the U.S. had such a strong culture within the black identity and they had to create such a strong sense of self that whenever Uncle Sam sneezed, the U.K. caught a cold and most of the rest of the world gets a cold. The U.S. is heralded as a standard almost for society. And because of that, the importation of U.S. ideals and values are quite typically still pushed in U.K. society, which has ultimately affected the way the black British population also sees their relationship with mental health institutions, mm -hmm. which is a very unique experience. But mm -hmm. they, 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 there's a lot of different barriers, but those are some. There's even one of the bigger, biggest barriers to treatment is mental health is not always accessible. It's, it's very expensive. You know, some therapists are charging up to £200 a session and some people don't even earn £200 a day. Right. The private market, I know, is unregulated and that's how it should be. That's capitalism for you, free market capitalism. But at what point do you put profit over people's mental health? And I'm hoping that I'll be able to make mental health accessible. Of course, I'll need to make money and time. It's valuable. But I want to make mental health accessible for people and for that to no longer have to be a barrier to live in their lives. Because a healthy population does a greater good for humanity than an unhealthy population does. Right. 
You know, and what I would imagine is another implicit barrier that I think happens in every community is not realizing that was mental health. Absolutely. Right? Like, maybe I'm flawed. Maybe I'm just a bad person. What if I am a monster? What if I Mm. am worthless? What if I am no good? You think about all the different messagings we get, not only from other people, not only from culture, but from ourselves. You know, isn't that the big takeaway here with OCD? Like, the messaging that we give ourselves that we will do so much to hide because it's terrifying could i be this could i could that be true that's not even seen as mental health that's seen as i'm a bad person i must be a monster and so even getting the idea of this is mental health and then making it accessible i mean there are so many different layers that need to really don't know, like awaken in this in this kind of conversation, in this movement of getting people access to good care. But certainly having understanding people of color, having people of gender, people of spiritualities and people or being able to partner with, you know, just like you said earlier, like we can, we can bridge having a therapist work with you so we can work on religious OCD and I can bridge with your person of faith. I think similarly, maybe you live in a place where you're not going to have access to a male therapist or a black therapist or see representation there. But could you partner with a group, with a community partner where you go, wow, here's a strong black male figure that can help me, uh, not a strong black male here to bridge for the sake of this client really being able to embrace who they are, their identity. And that's not to say that any of us, just because we have the same skin color, are going to get each other completely. It's not about that. It's about being seen. It's about knowing that you're not alone, about understanding. Sometimes you don't want to sit there and teach your therapist what it means to just be you. You need help with you. So Absolutely. not just, I, I very, I live in the Midwest right now. It's a very white area. Okay. But I, I see a myriad of clients and I used to live in LA where I was one of the very few white people. Okay. Mm. And I was one of the very few monolingual white people. And so I, there was a limit to my reach, but I was always very, and I've always tried to be the kind of person to remind myself, it's okay to not know what I don't know, but I'm not going to pretend I know it. I'm going to go in and I'm going to say, I don't know what I don't know. I would love to bridge and partner and resource with people that are going to make us feel like more complete. And sometimes people are like, you know what? We're good. I I feel good about this. I feel like you just saying that makes me feel like I can approach this. And other times people are like, yeah, I would really love to bring in this source here, whether it's a religious leader, whether it's a godfather that has been a father figure to this person. It could be many different examples. And it's so important. And so sometimes we're not going to find, like you said, there's going to be a lot of females. A lot of females because that's the socially acceptable role that used to be for a therapist, right? Like, no, no hate on the men, but like, are you women in your feelings? Yeah, you go talk about that. We'll go do real work. It used to be more of a perception. There may still be some of Mm. that. uh, But, you know... We know that we know the truth, Sean, so I'm not intimidated by it. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, like, do you feel like when you did go to therapy, did it matter to you 
the gender didn't matter to you, the ethnicity of your therapist or the age in terms of whether you felt understood. So originally when I started therapy, yeah, I wanted to have a black therapist and I believed a black therapist would have helped to understand me more. They would have known a lot more about me and they did for a while. But when OCD came knocking at the door, I didn't care about the color, gender, race. I didn't care about anything to do with who the therapist was. And my therapist was a white Scottish lady. And her and I were talking about this. I had an article idea at the time, which was black and white thinking, how a black man was saved by a white therapist. So playing on the idea of black and white thinking being a cognitive distortion, because I think at the time, if I had refused the therapist's help because she was white, I would have cut my nose off to spite my face. Mm -hmm. And I was in a really desperate place at the time. And I absolutely understood I needed help regardless who you were. If you could help me, you could help me. Now, I understand that's probably not the case for everybody. And if it's a really strong idea that you've got in your head, then you're allowed to have the idea. But you have to be careful that you're not refusing help just on the basis of skin color. But I know relatability helps and it's, it has helped me in the past. And I'm not sure whether I'm going to specifically look for a black therapist now. I don't know. I think I'm a lot more open to whoever they are as long as they can help me. But I know for some people, it's a lot more important to them. I can negotiate on that, but maybe I can negotiate on it because I've had a really good white therapist. Maybe that's a, another privilege that I've had. That's something that really can help. But in the past, yes, I definitely looked for a black therapist. I had black therapists that really did help. They helped to understand me. But yeah, when it came to my OCD breakdown, I needed someone. That understood OCD. It, yeah, it was bigger. It was bigger than anything else. Yeah. The OCD was the, at the front and the center of everything that was going on in my mind. And as I said, I couldn't cut my nose off to spite my face. It would not have made sense. Yeah. And that's, again, you know, it just really circles back to the unity and diversity. It, it, OCD gives zero shits about the color of your skin about yes. your gender how, or how you identify. It gives zero shits about your religion. It gives zero shits. You know, it, it strikes everyone. Yeah, and, so, and it's funny. It's funny because OCD attacks everybody regardless of your color, race, gender, class, and background. It, all ethnic groups across the Western world suffer with OCD similar rates. Yeah, but like you said, you know, depending what lens you're looking through, could be demons, you might be demon-possessed, could be this, could be that. And there's going mm. to be different kind of theories of thought. And so part of how we can, I would imagine, help increase access to treatment is just getting the word out on mm. what is this? So you're talking about reducing stigma around having these scary intrusive thoughts and also just saying it's okay to get help it's okay for a man to cry it's okay for a man to go to therapy it's okay for a man to be a therapist it's okay this touches us all and so it's i think that's really important but as we're also continuing to brainstorm what other ideas do you have in terms of support or resources that could help continue to break down the stigma and decrease some of these barriers that are really getting in the way of ethnic minorities having access to care. So I'm actually working right now on a potential speaking tour to take across to different medical institutions, universities, higher education institutions, religious institutions to open up the conversations about 
mental health, first of all. Secondly, I think something else that would really help is having spaces now where people can speak so openly about their OCD and they no longer have to worry about the shame. But that's almost an incredibly momentous task. And that's going to take years to change just due to um, the taboo nature of what OCD is. I think the more and more people we have, unfortunately, celebrities sometimes set the trend. If a celebrity on the internet speaks about their OCD, everybody else suddenly finally starts to listen. So I think we have to start having OCD presented via certain celebrities in ways that other people would actually start to want to listen. But times are slowly changing. And I believe that from the experience I've had from speaking about my story, I've had hundreds of people reach out black, white, Asian, everywhere across the spectrum, they've opened up to me and they've told me. And one of the biggest things that I found has really helped has been sharing the story. People, when I've shared my stories, people have honestly said to me, if it wasn't for your story, I wouldn't have gone and get checked. If it wasn't for your story, I wouldn't have known this is what I've got. So sharing the story releases you from being a prisoner of the past or being the prisoner of your current situation. A story shared is a burden halved. And it's the more you tell your story, sometimes the more you can become desensitized to it. Although I know for some people, they might become, they might relive it a little bit more. It depends on how you see it. It's a matter of perspective. But it's telling your story so other people out there know that they're not alone. When I released my very first article about OCD, people I knew reached out to me about OCD. Mm. And I was like, we're friends and you never told me. Mm. And that tells you something. So. Right. I think not everybody has to be an advocate. Not everybody has to be an activist. It's not everyone's responsibility, but change the world around you, even if it's in the smallest ways in your interpersonal relationships. And I think that will have a really big, profound effect on increasing ethnic minorities speaking about OCD. And in turn, I believe that will have a big snowfall effect into who we see in representation, in trials and so much more. Yeah. So just even whether you're an advocate to the world or you're an advocate just to yourself, that matters. And it has a ripple effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, sometimes there. So this community that I've created here is really it's a support community for family members, loved ones, partners, spouses of OCD sufferers. And certainly we have OCD mm. sufferers tuning in. But in terms of trying to provide support and resources, understanding that often the family or the loved ones are such a vital part of the environment mm. and that OCD, yes, it's growing it can, and it's really manifesting in you, but it impacts all those relationships, right? And sometimes there is this protective, I think, well-intentioned desire for us to just keep this in the family. Because I don't want people to judge my loved one with OCD. I don't want people to come down or assume I don't want my loved one locked up. I don't want it mistaken for something else. And so, yes, absolutely. I think having those stories normalized and certainly for the OCD sufferer, so, so powerful. And I think powerful for the family members, too, that have the insight to understand what their loved one is going through. But what do you think in terms of, because I think this is part of where we, this is my idea, but part of where we need to really focus some of the work, go into those support systems because that person, we can, one person can fish or we can teach a team to fish. 
and nobody, like I'm a mama bear, right? You know, so I no one is going to go to bat as much as mama or your dad or anybody else, your loved ones, they've got your back. And so if we can help families also in learning about how to break down stigma and how to bash through some of these barriers, I think that ripple effect is going to become a tsunami before we know it. Yeah. So what do you think in terms of approaching the family and going, is this okay? Can we talk about mental health? How can we understand? How can we build trust or be willing to build trust that something positive could come out of here versus I'm going to be abused by the system. I'm going to be trampled on by the system. Any thoughts to that? That's a, it's a really good question. And I think family members, first of all, have to be willing and open to hear certain ideas or sometimes it takes certain situations for family members to sit down and realize my views are outdated and my views are no longer helping this situation. And from me speaking about my story, as I said, it changed the world around me and the people around me and people will be like, oh, you speak about OCD, man. I didn't realize OCD was like this. I didn't realize OCD was this serious. Those things really help you and the immediate circles around you can get a very different idea if they want to listen, if they're receptive to receiving new information, then that's fantastic. If they're not, I highly would recommend you let your work speak for itself. But mm -hmm. your family, you can't choose, but you can choose your family outside of your family. So finding a support network who understands your OCD can be, if you decide to get OCD friends or other people you really trust and you know genuinely want the best for you and are happy to hear what's going on not happy per se but mm -hmm. they're willing to hear what's going on in your life even when it's good or when it's bad these are the things that really matter and they've made a big important big big change in my life and to the other people around me but if they're willing to hear then it's fantastic but if you're a family member now listen and you have someone that you love that obviously has ocd get cleared up and do your research because sometimes when you think you're helping you're reinforcing the anxious behavior through reassurance, through letting them know it's going to always be okay. You've got to let people with OCD sit with the discomfort. The discomfort, the willful tolerance and acceptance is the most important part. So get educated. If you love and you care about your family member, which I presume you do because you'll be listening to this, get clued up. You've yeah. got to get clued up. Oh, I really love that. Getting, getting educated is so important because sometimes it feels like, yeah, but I'm... I'm getting educated in one person. I was just saying this on the podcast last week. I was like, yeah, I'm one person here in a cornfield in Indiana, presumably. That's what people think of when they think of Indiana. But I'm one person talking to another person. Sean. Absolutely. Yeah, in the UK. Keeping them up late. It's like a whole new day for you there. It's as midnight. Yeah, it's, it, it's, what is it? It's 12 in the morning. That's all right. We've, we've had such a beautiful, free-flowing, natural or organic authentic conversation and as i said as much as I'm, I'm 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 up late i've been inspired i've got all my notes here of the things that i've been taking on so i'm grateful and i'm humbled to be invited onto your platform because if it wasn't again for ocd i wouldn't be even been exposed to people such as yourself so i'm in debt and i'm in utter gratitude and you're going to be going in my journal tonight i have a gratitude <laughs> journal so I always write down the good things about my day. And this has been an absolute beautiful end to my day. Thank you. Well, and again, not to like be too like 
sounded like a broken record, but this is the unity and diversity, right? Absolutely. Because I wouldn't know you either if I didn't have OCD. And that tells you something. Whilst OCD has been probably the toughest thing we've ever gone through, it's brought together a different community we would not have ordinarily been able to be exposed to. So in a strange, bittersweet way, I'm thankful to OCD. Right. And I, you know, one of the things I'll say to my clients, I think I started to go there and I probably rabbit trailed. Imagine that. But earlier with OCD folks in the community not liking it being used as an adjective or saying it's a positive. But something that I always, always emphasize to my clients and I emphasize to this community on the regular as well is actually, I think the silver lining, which I would never wish on anyone, I don't want it to be at the cost of OCD. But if you got it and you're dealing with it and you can engage in the treatment, what a gift to be able to embrace the uncertainty. Absolutely. This is a world riddled by the lack of certainty. And if you it's just true. buy this or you do that or you bulk up or you do that or you lose the weight, if you do that, this defines this is success. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll have this. Then you'll do that. No, no, there's it. It's never going to fit that mold. Just the way OCD is never going to be satisfied with as much as we serve it with a compulsion. Right. And so no. being able to go, actually, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Yeah, it is scary. And I'm going to go live my life. Absolutely. I am and going to live. And that's the key part. Do not give up on yourself and do not allow your temporary feelings to make permanent decisions i know that darkness that the cloud of darkness that ocd brought on my life but every day i choose to live and practice that erp lifestyle and i'm no one special we are all able to do it i know at times it probably feels like you can't do it but you've got to take every day as it comes i never thought I'd be at this stage of my recovery, but I've arrived and I continue to take every single day with a new ounce of gratitude and just a new sense of purpose from using the pain and turning it into my purpose has been one of the most beautiful things I think OCD has ever showed me. And I think I just stopped taking my mental health for granted. I really and truly realized that I can't. So that's where OCD has given me. It's nice to be able to be in the space. It's such a, a free space that I think for so many, they think isn't even attainable to go. I'm in this place, not despite my mental health, but in reflection of it. Like part of what makes you strong in the same way you can be masculine and cry. Part of what it makes you strong is that you have mental health. And that makes us not robots, right? We have feelings, mm. we have emotion, we have all of that. Like we, we get to contribute that part of our beauty comes from everything we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so it's, it's, you know, it is a really, really hard thing to deal with OCD. We don't wish it on our worst enemy. But, of course not. But what a beautiful silver lining. That can be drawn Absolutely. out of that. As, as we come to a close, just lately in the podcast, I've been learning about inference-based CBT. And I was wondering... I've heard about that out you, of Canada. Out of Canada, yes. So I think you've heard about it. I've heard it's a new treatment that's potentially really helping people. Yeah. So Dr. Frederick Ardema is one of the co-founders of that treatment. And I thought it was pretty new, too. Here in the States, we're pretty team ERP. 
because it's the gold standard. But mm. as I've learned more about ICBT, I've learned it's actually been around a minute. It's been it has 30 some odd years of research behind it. And I have to tell you, as much as I credit ERP for a huge breakthrough for me and so many of the clients I've been honored to serve and so many in this community, mm. ICBT is a really nice choice as well. And that's nothing that's not dissing ERP at all. But in terms of, you know, like the black and white thinking, as we we're talking about, like, this is the thing that's going to do it. Yes, it has research and it is going to do it. But often there's more than one way to solve a problem. And I am really loving what I'm learning about inference-based CBT in terms of its approach to OCD. It's yeah. completely, radically different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read into it a little bit more. And also, as I said, I've been on the trial for psilocybin as well. So they're exploring magic mushrooms as a potential yeah. treatment for OCD. Because what it does and what I want people to understand is I'm not, sitting here trying to sell you mushrooms but there was a 2006 study done by harvard that showed that there's a incredible therapeutic benefit to mushrooms on a range of mental health disorders and illnesses and let me explain this so typically when it comes to ocd we have very rigid thinking and we it's stuck in certain places and there's other theories such as the limbic system is out of whack the nervous system is out of whack so if I ask you who you are and you and Nicole, you might give me an answer, right? That's your default mode network that answers. Your default mode network is these fixed ideas and ideals of who you say you are as a person. What Mushrooms does, which has been shown on scans, is it shuts down that default mode network and fires up other parts of your brain that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to access consciously. It gives you a chance to now get you to see these other parts of your brain, which in turn you have different neural pathways and what people need to understand with anxiety because anxiety is a learnt behavior what mushrooms do is they essentially set fresh snow which means you can learn new behaviors quicker it enhances neuroplasticity so mm -hmm. we're living in a in quite an exciting time for ocd research and as you said inference-based cbt there's psilocybin and there's other psychedelic treatments now that are coming out so don't lose hope but we may potentially and i strongly believe live in a world where ocd could be eradicated i love that you know what it doesn't hurt to dream it and we don't make a lot of movement if we're not really going towards a goal if we're not motivated if we're not seeing something and visualizing it and going for it but i i love that you brought that up actually because we were talking about what are some of the barriers to access sometimes it's our own brains the neurology right and so yeah. being able to take part in some of the exciting innovation that has allowed us to fully access our brains more is amazing. And it's happening in all sorts of different places within the medical and the mental health field. Psychedelic yeah. research has been a really growing, emerging area of research within OCD, I would imagine, within other mental health disorders as well. But that also brought up the note for me. The article that you published, and I'm going to have a link to that article as well, is that you're participating in the research, which you said, but that's huge, right? Because if you think mm. about how the ethics of research used to be conducted and the distrust of the systems in place that mm. have had generational biases towards Absolutely. different ethnic groups, part of the change 
and you said this in the article, is participating, right? Yes. In saying, I am going to make the difference. And part of how we build trust is I go there and I say, okay, I'm going to try it. Even if it's completely uncomfortable, I'm going to participate in this research study. And you are. And so you're being part of that change just in saying, how do we rebuild trust? Well, we don't do it from the sidelines. We got to go there. Right. Absolutely. So you're getting in the arena and you're doing you're participating in research, which you had mentioned before. But I just wanted to emphasize it from that lens, because that's another thing that can be done. If you're like, how can I help with access to care? There are a lot of different research studies going out. There are a lot. And I've talked about research on the podcast. It's super important, but it does not absolutely will not include ethnic minorities if ethnic minorities aren't participating in it. And so part of the reason people aren't is an us problem, but also part of the responsibility is people braving, walking across that threshold and saying, okay, this thing that I'm experiencing, I'm going to trust that whether I'm taking a placebo effect or the actual medication or whatever, I'm going to trust that this is going to make a difference, not just for people like me, but anybody fighting OCD. But knowing that it works for people in my ethnic group, that is going to help build trust that this system is something I can believe in. It's for me because I can see myself in it, right? So that's definitely really important too. Well, I super appreciate the time that we've had here today. I launched in so quickly, I didn't even have my welcome to the OCD Family Podcast, Sean. (laughs) But I'm really excited to be able to put this out there. And it's just a continued conversation. I recognize that I'm this white woman in the middle of Indiana, but I have to go and have conversations. If I want to learn And if I want to learn from people, we don't do this in a silo. We've got to work together. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an honor. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Man, I I am so grateful for the conversation that Sean and I were able to create around the importance of treatment and research for ethnic minorities, for seeing more representation from the treatment providers to the treatment protocols. And you know, one of the takeaways amongst many important points that we discussed today is the importance of having these conversations with our loved ones. If we can't find a way to be able to have these conversations, even within our own family systems, how can we ever expect to have these conversations within our communities? It seems like it has to start at a family level. You know, Sean mentioned that his family didn't talk about mental health at all. I think a lot of the OCD family community can relate here. And yet, Sean is now an international advocate for breaking stigmas for mental health. How? He started some conversations. And he continued to have those conversations. And now we, family, are having these conversations. And through that awareness, education, and hope can be found. So my charge to y'all here in my intrusive thought segment, which is an application segment for all the new fam in town, is to have some family conversations this week. What is mental health and what has it meant to you? Did you grow up discussing it, dismissing it, honoring it? Before OCD was on the scene, what did you think about therapy? What did you think about research? What did you think about the poor folks dealing with all these disorders? And now that you're in it, we're in it, does it change anything for you? 
Does it change what you want others to understand about it? We humanize and diversify and unify what it means to suffer and conquer mental illness when we can look around and realize that we truly, truly are not alone. So let's get to some of those conversations, fam, because we really are better together. See you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Sean and me embracing diversity. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.